What is going on? Welcome to Land Podcast. This week we have another episode with Skip Sly, and we are discussing a specific scenario where there's 50 acres. We discuss what this farm is made up of, some realistic goals for the neighborhood, and we're talking about what to do year one, year two, and so on. And this is a great conversation for someone that is maybe looking to buy a farm and understand what the punch list is moving forward. Maybe you already have one and you haven't done some of these projects. A great rule of thumb here for you guys. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. This is also going live tomorrow on the Exodus podcast. So if you're someone that listens to both podcasts, I apologize, you only get one episode this week, but this is so good. You could listen to it twice. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Before we get into this episode, I have a couple quick announcements that are very important. First off, there is still time for the Exodus trading program. All you have to do is use the code UPGRADE. Let's face it, we all have a camera that's lying around that's either broken or completely worthless, thankfully, right now. After a ton of great feedback from last year, we're opening up the upgrade program for the remainder of April. How does it work? In short, order any camera on our website, exodusoutdoorgear.com, and use the code UPGRADE to save 25% off any Exodus render, the render bundle, the brand new budget-friendly rival or rival bundle. After placing your order, the Exodus team will send you a return label for your trading camera. After receiving the camera, we'll ship you your brand new camera. If you're new to Exodus or you're not familiar with us, I'm gonna tell you this, five-year warranty, five-year theft and damage coverage, and the best customer service in the industry. We've been developing highly dependable cameras for almost eight years now. Be sure to take advantage of this unique savings opportunity and replace an old junky camera with a bulletproof and dependable Exodus camera. This thing can be any brand, non-working or working. It could be ancient. It could be a camera from 10 years ago that you found in your garage and you want to save 25% off the brand new rival or the Exodus render. Take advantage of this. Head to our website, exodusoutdoorgear.com and use the code UPGRADE. Next thing, I encourage you to check out acres.com. It's a mapping software. They're not a formal sp sponsor or anything of this podcast, but I just believe in the product so much that you can go in and perform due diligence on parcels so fast, learn so much very quickly. And I use it all the time. I use it every single day almost, looking at farms, looking at my own farm, trying to plan, trying to look at things differently with all the tools that are on there. I encourage you to go check that out. They have a free account and also premium subscriptions. The premium subscription has a lot of tools that I know you guys will enjoy. If you are buying or selling land or simply want to learn more. So I encourage you to go to acres.com and check that out. Lastly, if you are new to the podcast, I'm gonna tell you this, the goal here is to help 100 people buy their first farm. There's three ways to be included on that list. Number one, if you're in the state of Illinois or you're looking to buy in the state of Illinois, reach out to me and I'm happy to help any way I can represent you as a buyer's agent. Buyer's agents don't charge anything. I've been thankful enough to help a lot of people buy their first farm and it's such a rewarding process. Number two, if you wanna get connected with someone that I know that I would personally do business with, I'm happy to get you connected with some folks and you can do a little bit of the interview process on your own and find someone that's a good fit for your goals. And if I don't know anyone in the part of the country you're looking, I'll just tell you that. Number three, if you just simply learn something from this podcast that helps you take action confidently, I wanna still add you to the list. We are, like I said, over 50. I've done a little, uh, I've lost some probably in emails, but we are cruising along. And I just wanna thank everyone for all the support with the Land Podcast. It's been excellent and I've got to meet so many great people. So just thank you for everyone that has supported this project. Enough of all the intro, let's get right into the meat of the conversation. Here we go. 
now let's uh we're gonna put you through the next phase of this <laughs> of of some other questions here so i just want to talk about this and we may have touched on it a little bit but to start this conversation what is the biggest common mistake you see when it comes to habitat this is not just food plots but habitat overall on farms that you have seen over the years um probably everybody wanting to do shortcuts skipping steps you know man that fertilizer was expensive and you do need fertilizer um hey i have put fertilizer down for uh years but i never put any lime on and my buddy the other day shows me a soil test and his ph is four or five i'm like oh do you know how, do you know do you know how much lime that is going to take to fix that it's crazy so just skipping steps. Everybody wants to skip a step and make make it an easy button, like throw and grow. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with throw and grow. I'm not saying that. But if somebody says, hey, you, what do you want to plant? And, and you tell them and they're like, all right, here's the steps you got to take. And here's the herbicides or how you take care of the weeds. And you start skipping one of those steps even, it will break. It won't, it won't work. You can't skip any of the steps. I mean, there's no easy button for this and there's no like, eh. Now I get it. Like, Hey, I'm going to skimp a little bit on the fertilizer cause it's so expensive and things are tight and you know, it calls for 70 pounds of phosphorus and 60 pounds of potassium. And I'm going to dial that back to 40 you know, or whatever to save a little money. I get that. But, and that's not going to be a deal breaker, but like just skipping steps. Like, yeah. I didn't, I didn't kill any of the weeds. I just went right into them or something. Whatever those steps are, follow them to a T they're there for a reason. And if you leave out any of those steps, you are, are very likely to have a failure. That's a good point. I, I think everyone is, they were, a lot of people will say, ah, it's just, is this a food plot? It's just a deer plot. Do we really need to do that? Do we really need to do Farmers this? do that too. That's true. Hey, here, here's my field. Look at how beautiful it is. Uh -huh. Yeah, I went over to your farm and helped you out. Yours looks like garbage, but it's only for deer. Who cares? Uh -huh. And... No, you kind of got to think a little bit like a farmer. Like you almost have to think of it like, hey, I'm doing this for production, even though you're not. Farmers don't go skip steps. The good ones, at least the ones that aren't bankrupt. They don't be like, nah, I'm not going to get rid of the weeds this year. And I'm not going to, uh, you know, plant my corn on time. I'll get to my corn in July. You're not big, big things like that. I mean, I'm not going to have my pH right nobody's going to skip steps when you're farming. Well, if farmers aren't skipping steps, you shouldn't skip steps just because it's for deer. Doesn't mean the process should be different. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I'm going to give you keys to a brand new farm. So we're going to work through this top to bottom. I, I try to think of something that is most common across the board from parcels that I've seen or have helped put folks buy or sell. So this is, this should be good here. Okay. So I'm giving you the keys to the farm. I'm going to describe it to you. And we're going to discuss the highest impact projects all the way down to ones that can last, you know, push it down, down the road here. So this farm's a 50 acre parcel. It's comprising of 40 acres of timberland, five acres of FSA acreage with cropping history, and then five acres of just kind of edge habitat to where maybe they ran cattle and now it's trees, you know, two or three, four inches um, in diameter. And then it's located in an average neighborhood. A good goal for their age class is four to five years old. And the surrounding area is mixed land, a little bit of timber and some oddly chopped up tillable tracks. And the lowest hole in the bucket is up for debate, whether it's food or cover, assuming the answer may alter. So we don't really know if there is a drastic lack of cover, or we don't really know if the deer density is super high and we need a bunch of food or however that shakes out. So Q, 
Can you picture that farm? Actually, I'm going to give you a little bit more here too. The timber was cut heavily 50 to 60 years ago. Okay. So a high grade cut 50 to 60 years ago. The main species in, in the farm are hackberry, cherry, locust. You got some maple, some shagbark hickory, ironwood. You got a few bur oak that are left and a few red oak. And you got a 10 to 12 walnut throughout the farm that are like 15 inches in diameter. And you have honeysuckle on the edges of the timber. Can you picture that in your okay. head? There's a lot there. Got it. But I think that's that's a pretty common theme for farms across the country. So absolutely it is. So that's a really good example. So you bought this, and I want to make this the absolute best parcel possible in a realistic time frame, let's say three to five years. And so you close on this, let's say February. First thing you're gonna do. First thing I'm gonna do, um, if I'm a regular guy, is get a forester in there and get governmental funding and learn how to market properly. But the first thing I'm going to do is timber stand improvement right off the bat. Uh, hopefully I bought this like in the winter and I could get going in the winter. And, you know, if I bought it in the summer and I had to wait till the next winter, fine, but it's still like, you know, top right, right on the top of my to-do list. And I'm going to free up every one of those oaks, make sure they're growing great. And I'm probably get, probably going to open up some areas around them where there's junk trees so they can start to regenerate. So, and that's going to give more browse. I'm going to trash the areas a little bit so there's some bedding and I'm going to give those oaks a lot of room because there's very few of them and I want them to regenerate mm -hmm. and I want them to throw out more acorns and then that's going to just kill four or five birds with one stone with browse, bedding, um, regeneration, all that, all that stuff. Um, I'm probably going to immediately, immediately get rid of that bush honeysuckle. Stuff's just wicked and it's easy to get rid of. I mean, even if you're doing like basal bark, like spraying, the bottom part with garland or hey i'm, I'm gonna mow them off and spray the tips or i mean there's a million ways to do a bush honeysuckle you can look up a video how do i eradicate bush honeysuckle just look that up there's plenty uh get rid of that bush honeysuckle because you don't want to open that forest up and have that stuff get in there mm -hmm. and it probably will get in there at some point you got to watch that but it's easy to deal with if you're watching it so timber stand improvements first on my list and then now we can clearly get into food same time, right? Yeah, but real quick too. So even on the, let's say you were going to go in there that winter and one of those Baroques are on the edge where there was dense honeysuckle. Is that all at the same time, that same winter? I go, would, Go in yeah. and treat all the honeysuckle, open up the canopy, then spot yeah. treat whatever honeysuckle pops back Yeah, up. do it all at once. Yep. And you're back there anyway, like, hey, I'm going to go cut some junk trees out of here, like bitter nut, or there's a massive amount of locusts and I want to thin those out or if it's black locust, like eradicate it. Well, go get the honeysuckle at the same time. I mean, and if it's around the edges, literally, literally while you're in there, you could literally just, it's not fun. I've done this a million times though. You could take your chainsaw and just cut them off and then just treat the tips. Just dab the tips with garland, tordon, glyphosate. I mean, there's a million options there too. Um, and just take care of it at the same time. It's not gonna take that much time. And if we're talking 50 acres, with edge bush honeysuckle i mean we're talking a matter of hours you know to solve a huge problem that could become a problem that's like this problem is now a week-long problem or two weeks of eradicating that stuff where we're right out of the gate it's two hours mm -hmm. or three hours so very very quick to deal with that yeah I'd, I'd be doing that immediately day one and when you're doing that tsi are you chop are you felling most of those trees are you girdling them Let's say some of these ha some of these hackberries are pretty big, and this is a someone that's more inexperienced too. I guess if you're putting that hat on right know. now. All right, inexperienced double girdle. Uh, if you want them dead, you know hackberry, you can do a single girdle, and then just put some. I like garland. Um, 
which is try try cloper but it's got garland four if you look that up g-a-r-l-o-n four generics try cloper and you just put that around the cambium layer that you cut in so you're cutting in about you know say an inch deep and then you just spray around that that will kill that tree now i like with a hackberry i like to double girdle them and let the shoots come back up and the deer will kill that tree just because i have enough deer and that provides more browse now that is not going to work for something like a black locust or something that's going to turn into a nightmare you need to chemically treat those anything that's like invasive nasty chemically treat those um i will i would always like to fell a tree if you can do it safely over double girdling and uh, or chemically treating it. I mean, I'd love to fell the tree because that instantly, instantaneously opens that canopy up. And I like it. So if I'm like, hey, there's veneer walnuts over here. If I can fell that tree, so I know it's going away from the veneer walnut and it's not going to hit it. And I can immediately put it on the ground. I know that at no point will that tree fall into that veneer walnut or fall into that oak tree. And I'm always trying to protect those crop trees. So and then you just say, well, what can you fell safely? You know, just figure it out. I mean, if you fall, if you fell a tree like this, and, you know, and it, it were to fall on you, it's not going to, it's not going to hurt you really. I mean, you start doing stuff that's, you know, 12 inches in diameter. Yeah, you can get hurt. So you'll figure that out. I would fell anything you can that is not going, going to hurt you for an inexperienced person. And you know, maybe a point of reference would be like, whatever, six inches and smaller. I like following them better. And then, like I had mentioned to you before, if you do want a hinge cut, you know, a rough, rough idea would be like, hey, I'm going through there on a normal, a normal stand. You know, don't do more than like one out of 10 trees you're going to hinge cut. Or just pick little pockets here and there that are like a quarter of an acre or a tenth of an acre and just do like multiple little pockets so it's not like this giant gnarly area that you're like oh my gosh and nothing can get through there you're like did you make this for rabbits <laughs> deer won't go in there just make them small if you want to trash it that's cool just make them really small so even worst case a deer are like no i can get around this no problem it's not giant so like you know the size of um anybody's bedroom that's watching like three four five times that size you know, we're talking a pretty small area, you know, which would be like 20 trees. Yeah, you can trash that. Yeah, I took everyone down. And it was a tangled mess. That's fine. Just don't do not do it like two acres or something. That's crazy. Okay. Just very small areas. What um, about when you actually chop the trees down? Does it ever get too impassable from doing that? Assuming I don't have that unless unless I chop down something that, it, that I should have treated like a, a black locust. And then and that's just one example. The only time it's going to be unpassable is if um, if I were to chop the stuff down and an invasive got in there, like bush honeysuckle. I've seen it impassable with bush honeysuckle, or I've seen it impassable many, many, many years later if cedars got in there too thick. And usually, aren't, cedars aren't going to take over a hardwood though, so I wouldn't worry about cedars. And then I've seen it where multiflower rose gets in there. So again, I'm just going to revert back to two non-native invasives that I want to take and bush. And if I had to go multiflower rose versus bush honeysuckle, bush honeysuckle is far more pro problematic, far more. It will take over your forest. Multiflower rose generally doesn't. 
multiflower rolls will get into little pockets. We're like, ooh, that pocket's nasty. And then you can go touch it up. It won't generally take over a whole force. I, it, some people might say, I know of examples. It's pretty rare though, that I've seen it where it literally takes over the whole force. Bush honeysuckle, on the other hand, I've seen it take over the whole forest. Like that's all there is. There's no sunlight getting to the floor. There is no new oak trees growing. There's nothing. It totally took over the whole forest. So between those two, just really watch for bush honeysuckle. Um, and multiflower roses is, is one that I'm just not as concerned about. Mm -hmm. Just just if you're like, hey, I got limited time, just pick back at those areas where like, whoa, that multiflower rose got crazy here. And you could spend two hours and clean up the, the areas that I'm talking about, literally with a chainsaw or with like a, uh, a weed whipper with a blade on it yeah. or with fire or with a mulcher for a skid steer or with a backpack sprayer and spray them. I mean, so there's a million ways to deal with that one. You know, run a little fire through it and spray some of the re-sprouts later. A million ways to deal with it. A million. Uh, multiflower rose, minor. Bush honeysuckle, major, mm -hmm. major problem. So one other, yeah, if you're watching for those, yeah, one other side tangent on the honeysuckle, some, some guys I've seen like, man, I, I hope my neighbor takes out all the honeysuckle. Cause that's all the cover. What do you say to that guy? Yeah. If, if you just did that, just remove the honeysuckle. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that. I'd want to do timber stand improvement along with it. Yeah. It's not a standalone. So, so it's, yeah, it's paired with yeah, something hey, else. I just took out the honeysuckle and I didn't touch the rest of my timber. I didn't get rid of all the junk trees as well. Yeah, you're gonna you're, you're gonna be in trouble. Okay. And those people, if that was your approach, which I would say it's just the incorrect approach for deer for deer reasons, just do sections at a time. You know, if you got eight, if you got fifty acres, your example, you know, and you're worried about, hey, I'm worried the deer won't like this. Do like five acres a year. And I know it's not quite ideal, and we're trying to knock back invasives. I mean, the governmental answer would be to know you eradicate bush honeysuckle at all costs at all time. Well, some of that cost is going to be your deer hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to do that. But there's ways around that, very viable, easy ways around that where, hey, yeah, I took out all the bush honeysuckle. It's dead. And I also opened the canopy up. I did some hinge cutting. There's all this new growth. There's new forbs and new trees sprouting all over the place. And just keep on the bush honeysuckle so that doesn't come back and let all the, the natural things sprout back up. And you're going to have a jungle and those deer are not going to be pushed over to your neighbor's farm. And I would argue that if you open that canopy up and you let all this new browse come up and you let it get thick with natural things that are in your forest, the deer from your neighbor's farm that's choked out with no browse, uh -huh. no browse, no, nothing to eat and, and not an ideal forest, they're going to come onto your farm. So let him keep all his bush honeysuckle. The only downside of that is It'll end up he's on. constantly putting <laughs> seeds on. Yeah. But you're going to, either way, even, even if he didn't, they're going to come in there. Birds drop these things. It's just, now it's just light maintenance. Once you get rid of the bush honeysuckle, now it's just light maintenance. And especially on 50 acres, this is a matter of a couple hours a year. If you eradicated them once, now I'm going to go through my forest and find little ones and I'll spot spray them or, or cut them off and treat them or whatever you want to do or light a fire through there. Um, now it's really, really easy to deal with. But but now but that my bush honeysuckle is gone and I've got some hinge cutting done and I've got lots of sunlight hitting the floor and I've got natural regeneration of, of uh, the trees and new woody growth, woody browse and all the other, the forbs and legumes that come up. Yeah, you're going to have an ideal, ideal, desirable, forest now. okay so 
step one, TSI. Step two, eradicate invasives. Now, yes. now we're on to step the priority number three for this brand new spanking farm that you're excited to you know tackle. Uh, definitely food. I mean, year one is going to be food. And I go into a new farm not expecting to shoot a mature buck. I just, I just plan it. If there's one on there, that's awesome. Sometimes there is, sometimes there is not. So I want food there so I can start protecting the deer, the young deer. But I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I want to shoot mature deer. And like you just, you said in this example, you know, the goal is four or five-year-olds. Okay, so I want to protect, therefore, I want to protect the, the two and three-year-olds or whatever, maybe even one. Uh, well, we're, not, we're not in Michigan, though, so uh, we don't have to protect the one-year-olds in Illinois, hopefully. Um, but the two and three-year-olds, uh, I want to protect those. So I want food there. So when the guns are going off and my neighbors are being maniacs, if they were, then I have things on my farm that hold them there. And the amount of travel they do when they have great bedding and food next to it and they're not disturbed, the amount of travel is very minimal, very minimal if you don't disturb them. Second, you say, hey, there's no food there or the cover is not ideal. Now their travel gets a lot bigger. Mm. They have a far bigger range. So what I want to do with 50 acres, if every deer on there had a range like this, you know, it was um, whatever, whatever it was, whatever it was, just, you know, half mile. I want to make it go shrink down, whatever that is. I just want it shrunk down. So a lot of deer, a handful of deer, you're not going to, clearly you're not going to protect all of them. So you are going to lose some bucks. Um, but I just want to know like a handful will stay on my farm during daylight hours and get lucky enough. And they're survival machines. These deer are not that stupid, especially when they get to three and four. Um, you know, they, they know how to survive pretty effectively. And if you put the odds in their favor by leaving food on your farm and you're not, and they feel safe there and they have small travel areas, the chances of them going to the neighbor are just diminished substantially. Mm -hmm. So food is key and diverse food is key. And food during archery, gun, late muzzleloader season to keep them safe is key because I don't want them going to other places where they're going to get shot. So I'm, I'm trying to save those bucks. So therefore, you know, the first year, hey, I don't have a mature buck to hunt, but year two and year three, I definitely will. So that's why I'm doing food and I'm doing it for nutritional reasons. Um, I want the deer to have optimal nutrition, stuff like that. But I would say it's mainly, you know, year one, it's mainly a safety reason and starting to build that farm up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times with a 50 acre farm, you know, if I bought a 50 acre farm, a lot of times it'd be like, yeah, you know, for the last 10 years, uh, 20 guys would show up here and they just shot everything out of here. So now it's kind of like, I got to rebuild it. Well, how do you rebuild it? You rebuild it by fixing the habitat and fixing the food and keeping them safe. And unfortunately not letting 20 guys go through there and shoot everything. Right. So, so food is key first. Year. Are you key? Are you taking out the five acres FSA tillable to put in food or are you trying to carve it out of that other growth that maybe you could put into a plot? Um, it's, it's being left in food. Okay. It is. Now, the only reason it's not being left in food is like, Hey man, I'm at home eating ramen noodles. Yeah, I don't have enough money to put gas in my car. Okay. But but then you shouldn't be owning 50 acres. Yeah. You shouldn't. So five acres, hey, I can get a farmer to pay me. And most farmers are going to be like, dude, I don't want to mess with five acres. Right. And they're usually doing it for a favor. And usually, because I farm and I know what five acres looks like, usually they're like, 
deteriorate all my edges anyway. And they don't really want to farm it. So just maximize it for food. Mm -hmm. I would. Uh, your farm's going to be vastly better off for it. I mean, for hunting reasons, hey, I bought this 50 for hunting. Then absolutely, absolutely, no doubt in my mind, utilize that five acres uh, for food. And it is not about money at this point. And, you know, that's why me buying that 50 acres, you know, it's not about money. Otherwise, if it was about money, I just would have bought a tillable piece. I wouldn't have bought that, that those trees, mm -hmm. the timber. Doze it all out. Farm, farm the timber then if it's just about money. Sure. It's not. It's not about money. And I guess that's an answer for me, but I would say, I would suspect most people would look at it like this who are watching this, like, yeah, this isn't about money. This is about my enjoyment. This is about an asset that I have that's meant to be fun in the fall and rewarding in the fall. Then yes, load that five acres with food, 100%. Diverse choices. Diverse choices of food. Okay, so we have- With a grain. With a, with a grain if it's five acres. So would three, of eight, three acres of that be grain and two acres be that other 80-20 mix? Or 80 or 20-40? Yes. I'd, I'd say that'd be a very good example. And then if three acres of it are, are grain, I would say if you have a medium to high deer density, you're probably looking at an electric fence. You probably are. You could try it without it. And if you're going to try it without it, I would do soybeans just because your input costs are so much lower. And if you try soybeans and they fail, and I suppose corn too, but soybeans are easier. If your soybeans fail, you still have backup plans because you're planting your soybeans in whatever, let's just say May. And you're like, oh my goodness, it's July. They ate them to the dirt. And I've had this many times. I'll just make them really big. No, they still ate them to the dirt. <laughs> uh, that's why I just fence them now. It's I just would. <laughs> and and you got clover next to it and all these other things too that you're like okay so they're still getting nutrition they're not eating the beans but they still have other things for nutritional reasons but the the fence is not expensive it's pretty easy to do and you're doing hot and uh, then they won't eat into the dirt fence. yeah and i've experimented i'm not an expert with these fences at all but i've experimented where i'm like okay i'll raise them up higher so i'll do like three strands and one will get to like I think last year I tried like five or six feet and then I had the out, out, uh, the exterior one where it was one strand or maybe I did two. So it was two layers. And then I left a few of them last year where I did not electrify them just to see if it'd work and it worked. They didn't jump it. Okay. So it was just enough deterrence without them being hot. Yeah. And somebody's going to be like, he said, don't electrify it. And they're not, and they're going to have deer all over. <laughs> so don't hold me liable here. It's just, this was one year experiment okay. uh, of not electrifying it. And it did work, but I also made the wires higher, added more. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just one year experiment. Okay. All right. But yeah, I've had them eat into the dirt, but again, I'll just finish that statement off. If they eat them to the dirt, you still have so many backup plants because now you can plant, it's a clean, it's a clean area to go put brassicas in. And then it's a clean area to go add a rye mix later. And, and any grain field I have, any one that has to do with hunting, you know, if I'm like, hey, I planted an 80 acre cornfield and I want to leave a little bit for the deer, a little bit, like I'll have a patch. I'll go along the edges and be like, okay, the coons, it's usually the coons, uh, will destroy the edges and then I'll just bring my drill and I'll just drill right over that corn or or spread stuff right over it and so all and it's just a bare stalk there's no value to it right it, there's no food so then I just walk through there and seed over it with my red bag spreader which is fantastic like rye or brassicas whatever you want 
And anything where it is ravaged for a crop and soybeans the same way, like, hey, my first 10 rows, just they're, they're eating to the dirt. Then I just run the drill over there or spread things with my bag seeder because I want to utilize every square inch of, the, of that plot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is there anything else year one? I, I would say someone would probably be tapped out with projects for that first year. Is there anything else that, that needs to get slated in there before we go to year two? Not really. Um, food. I just say this to everybody and I'll just repeat what I say to all my friends who buy their first farms that just say, what would you do? It's not the right answer. It's just, what would you do? What I would do is do your timber stand improvement. Like we said, uh, with invasives, do your plots. Like we said, and the third thing, hunt it light and hunt it smart. Mm -hmm. And I know that's just a loaded topic, but just don't go pound it. Don't go pound, especially if you're like, and this is a tough one, but there isn't a mature deer in there and I want to get them to maturity. Okay. Don't go just pounding into your farm nonstop. Um, when you know there probably isn't a buck you want to shoot in there, learn it. I mean, I would want to learn that farm. I would want to hunt it. So I understood it. Like, Oh, they come out over there and Oh, this spot, I tried this spot over here and it's not very good, but just don't, just don't go pound it so badly that it's pushing the deer out of there because you're trying to protect them really. So it's a delicate balance between hunting pressure and trying to protect the deer. And you'll figure that balance out, hopefully. Uh, hopefully most people will figure that balance out. And, but I, but I do want to learn that farm because any farm I've ever owned or been on, it's, it takes me three years to learn it. And even after three years, even five years, even the farm I have now that I've had for whatever, 12 years, I mean, I'm still changing spots. I'm like, oh, I miss this. They move over here and I, I'm still shuffling stands 12 years later. So, but I'd say to have a farm down, like where I understand how the hunting works. I understand how the deer movement works. I understand how to get in and out without getting busted. It takes three years to kind of learn a farm. Just, I'll just bottom line my, my long rant there with just don't, just don't overdo it the first year when you're trying to protect deer, especially when you're trying to protect deer. That's great advice. I think people, it's like a shiny new toy. They want to hunt the heck out of it because it's brand new, but it's, it's something that everyone has worked for to have, you know, quote unquote control over their own, their first farm or their own farm. And then they turn into their own worst enemy year one, year two. And then that's some, discipline. That's what, yes, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Light. Yes. Light. Less is more. Go, go, go easy. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just moderation's very, and discipline is key here. Um, you just, you're, you're trying to make it better and guys that go in there and just annihilate it and just are in there all the time can almost become their own worst enemies sure. and they don't really realize that they are, mm-hmm. but it happens a lot. <laughs> is aside from the deer not being there or other observations, is there any rule of thumb that people should, is there any rule of thumb of like, yeah, I'm, I'm putting too much pressure on this place because of X, Y, Z. I mean, I think that's common sense, but I don't know if there's a golden rule. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I know it when I see it, Hey, I went and hunted my farm. 10 times in the last two weeks, right out of the gate. That's too much. It's too much. It just is a small farm. And Hey, yeah, I got blown at by deer, a bunch of them saw tails seven, eight times. Yeah. (laughs) That's not good, man. That's, that's a problem. You are hurting your farm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and 50 acres. Yeah. I, I have a, I have one, a little farm that there's like 10 acres of timber in it and it's so hard to hunt it, but I'll just, just barely scoot around some of these edges and barely just like creep over this hill to get into this tree stand. And I just don't hunt it very much. You know, if the, and if that was the only place I could hunt, like, Hey, this is my only farm. 
I would just like go find some public land to pound, you know, four out of the five hunts. And I'd only hunt that like 20% of the time, maybe, maybe 10. And I'd go to public and just, you know, I like being out there. So you got, you got to spread yourself out. Okay. All right. Year two, we have some of the foundation done. Now what? Change your stands that you got wrong. Change your blinds if you got them wrong. If you did any of those, if you did the blinds, you probably didn't put blinds up. But if you did, move them around. Um, I would check for invasives in the timber. Uh, I would see how things are are looking. And, and every year that goes by when you did TSI, uh, it's just going to start filling in more. It's, it's going to get better. So the first year is great. Second year is better. Third year is better. And it peaks out three or four years, it really does peak out. So you're pretty good, just light little maintenance in the timber. Um, and then now you're wanting to really dial in your soils for fertility, for pH, making sure they're spot on. And hopefully you did that to some extent the year before. And then, you know, the one thing I would put in, not the first tier by far, but maybe down the road, maybe this is the second year is stuff like tree plantings, And I would start if somebody's like, well, I have two types of tree plantings. One is like the large scale, like, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to order 2000 trees from the state nursery and I'm going to use a tree planter and do those. Don't do it. Don't do that year two. Don't do that's not a year two project. It's not. Uh, I would do like, because there's a huge learning curve with that. It's just, I would rather see somebody plant 50 the first year and learn how it works, learn how the herbicides work, learn how the survival rate works and the deer browse. I've seen so many guys go out and buy 2000 trees or 10,000 trees or 500 trees. And like, they all died happens all the time. And that takes so much work, so much money and they don't know how, and then they get overwhelmed and they're like, Hey man, I got to go water my trees. Okay. How many, I got to go water 10,000 trees understand what you're getting into so this is like starting in the uh the shallow part of the pool (laughs) do it start in the shallow end of the pool and i'm talking like if you're gonna like hey i want to plant trees to have trees uh like 50 trees 20 trees don't do it like 2000 you know and those are just random numbers but i think it illustrates it pretty well Mm -hmm. Uh, don't do that large scale stuff i've done it and Sometimes it's worked out okay. Sometimes it didn't work out. Well. <laughs> and the amount of people I see with tree failures is incredible. Now, are the failures from what are the failures from? Like, why why do they fail? Is it the weather? Is it just man, we got a summer hot summer and I wasn't able to keep up with watering them, or how they planted them? There's your, there's your issue. Is there's so many things that can go wrong. Yeah, so you get a drought last year. Hey, it didn't rain for two months. If you didn't water your trees, they died. Yeah. Then your other thing is like, hey. I planted those into uh, sod. I never did any weed control, you know. And I, I somebody told me that that's better is to leave it with, you know, fescue growing all around it. Well, that's going to choke them out and suck the moisture out of them and they're going to die or they get infested with weeds. I mean, and th- there's so many reasons. And then, hey, yeah, I planted all these shrubs that the deer love to browse on or all these trees. I didn't protect them. I did nothing. I just left them be, walked away. And yeah, they all die. They all die. Um, and I've seen that a lot. Now I've seen it where some die and I've seen it where none die. You know, very few die, but that's the exception. You know, the the first time, the first go around for somebody, just do less, just do like 20 or 50 or something like that. And I'd rather see you do 20 or 50 and protect them and watch them 
babysit them and look at them kind of once a month and be like, Hey, they're doing great. Or, Whoa, I'm glad I caught this. You know, the deer were nipping these off or maybe somebody tubes them and they realize their tubes are getting tipped over. And, you know, I put two stakes, big stakes in my each tube. That's just what I do. Cause I don't want them getting knocked over in the wind and deer knock them over. So there's all these things with tree planting. So, so just do a little and experiment and just realize you might fail but at least you failed with 20 trees and not 2000 trees. You might fail and just don't give up. Just repeat, repeat, repeat. And if you failed with 20 trees and it was a total failure, plant 20 trees again, don't go to 2000 then. Never increase that number until you can get 20 trees to grow successfully. Don't ever increase it. So whatever you start out with, if it's a total success, you'll know then, you'll know, you'll know the answer. Okay, I got 20 to go great and I know this now. I got it down pretty well. Now I dare to plant 500, then do it, but don't do it first step. And then the other one I would dare to do year one, just because I, I like, I do like getting a little head start on it. It's, it's, it's a delayed gratification by a long ways is your fruit trees. You know, is it priority one? No, it's not. But I do like start, starting it a little bit early. If you're a person who can, who can have the patience for fruit trees, who wants fruit trees, and can deal with some frustrations because fruit trees have some frustrations and I've learned all those lessons. Um, but I do like getting a head start. So you're like, hey, because guys on the ground for 10 years and they'll be like, dang it, I wish I would have yeah. done fruit trees earlier. And they take some time. It's not as much time as what you think. Uh, but then again, with the fruit trees, it's a it's the same thing. You have to, you have to do everything just spot on. Like, hey. I planted my fruit trees and I didn't cage them. You're done. Game over. Or even I planted my fruit trees. I'll come back next time in a week and cage them next week. No, the deer ate all your buds. They're gone. Um, or, you know, the fruit trees, like not knowing how to plant them. And hey, I, I, I dug up a bunch of soil and I didn't quite get all the soil back in. And now they, they're kind of sunk in a little bit and they died. Yeah, they drowned. They drowned. You got to learn this stuff. Add a little bit more soil because... When you break that up, the oxygen comes out of the, the soil and, you know, the earthworm channels and stuff like that. So you put the same amount of soil back and it sunk in. Yeah, it's because you took all those pockets out. So add a little bit more soil so it stays a little bit above, above grade, just a little. And then weed protection and spraying them. And clearly we want to go towards disease resistance, the most resilient trees for your area. And I can give you that list very succinctly with fruit trees in the Midwest, what I would do, but we, we always want to do more disease resistant. Um, and then there's some options on, well, do you want earlier dropping, later dropping? Well, why don't I have both? Why don't I stagger it? So what species do I do if I want to stagger it? And we can get into that, but um, more disease resistant. So you don't have to mess with them near as much, but still understanding you might still have to address some things like, Hey, I came to my fruit trees and it's filled with um, tent caterpillars. You got to address it. And the trunks of those trees for two feet up higher, maybe even higher in some of your high snow areas, the rabbits will girdle those things and the voles will eat your bark. So, how, oh, they will. Yeah, they'll eat the bark. They'll kill the tree. So you might go into fall being like, my trees look great. You come back in the spring and you're like, oh, they're gone. So I'll take like screen for your window and I'll cut two foot long screen by 12 inches wide 
and then I'll wrap it around the tree and I'll staple it bump, 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 all the way to the bottom. So nothing can girdle it. All the voles and the rabbits can't girdle it. And then as the tree grows, it can pop those staples out and now the tree's protected. And um, the other thing with a screen that's great where the tubes are a problem or the wraps or a, like a corrugated tube, do not do that. Do not do that because you can't see through it. And what happens is, is I pulled those corrugated tubes off of fruit trees before and like, like a family of mice runs out of there. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-oh, girdled. Uh-huh. And they, you know, it's a mouse nest. So don't do that. You want to be able to see through it. And if you did wrap that tree with anything, you know, that wrap would probably be better, that wrap tape. And then just inspect it. Uh, don't do the corrugated tube. I've learned that one the hard way. So protect the trees like crazy. Watch the trees. I would just say this. Put the trees in an area that are fairly accessible, where you are okay with the deer feeding, but don't don't put them like, hey man, I gotta hike through the center to the center of my farm to check on these fruit trees. Don't do that. Put them in an area that's somewhat accessible. Like, yeah, I'm cool with the deer coming here, um, and I can kind of slip over and look at my fruit trees, and I'm not blowing my whole farm out. Because you do want to check your fruit trees, like once a month. I would say once a month you'd probably want to check them, and I would probably spray them. I still would probably spray them with a few different things, uh, depending on what you have a couple times a year. And there's some organic methods of spraying. There's some conventional methods of spraying. There's fungal issues. There's all sorts of stuff. You guys can read up on that. <laughs> I have actually a couple videos on, I'll on say that. I think you need fruit a trees. And Iowa Whitetail's got a library on fruit trees. So there's your answer. Because you're not going to remember all this anyway. But I'll give you my quick list for the Midwest yeah. on what trees to plant. I personally, my number one fruit tree, period, end of story, is going to be pear over apple in the Midwest. You get further north into Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, when you get into sandier soils, that's where, that's where apples do better. It is less humid and the sandy soils will do a little better. When you get down to Iowa, Illinois, the humidity, the clay, stuff like that, the fungal issues with apples, uh, really does rear its head. And there's a reason why apples are grown in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Minnesota, or cherries or whatever. They have a very good soil type for that. And you go, why aren't there uh, fruit tree orchards just everywhere? You know, I mean, there's a few, but they're not everywhere in Iowa for sure. And you're like, well, Iowa's the land of growing things and fertility. They don't do as well here. So, so pear is my number one species to plant. And then I I do do apple. Now with pear, I'll just bottom line it with one pear tree that's my favorite and that would be kefir pear. Hands down, kefir pear. And if you're like, I'm only gonna plant one fruit tree. I'm only gonna plant one fruit tree. I can do that, kefir pear, done. And end of story. Now, kefir and somebody said, well, I want two more pears and I want a little bit of successional drop. I want some that drop a little bit earlier. Shenandoah, Seckel, um, I would just stick with that. Those would be my three, Shenandoah, Seckle, and I, there's a few others I have, Moon, Moon Glow or something, I can't remember. Uh, they do okay too, but those are three solid ones, and that'll give you a little bit of succession on when they drop, Kiefer being the latest. Uh, I've had a little bit of success with Asian pears like Olympic, Giant Korean, uh, not as much. They don't tolerate the humidity as much. Uh, they just don't do quite as well. So a Kiefer pear is a European type variety where your Asian pears are clearly Asian. And your European varieties will do better in the Midwest than your Asian varieties. So kefir pear, boom, done. 
Shenandoah, Seckle, if you want two more. Then we get to apples. And I would say my number one on apple would be like Arkansas Black. Why? Because it does really well in the Midwest soils. It just does excellent in, in the Midwest growing conditions. It is extremely disease resistant, extremely, and it is a late dropping apple, period, done. Arkansas Black, if you want one apple tree. And then I still would do, I do crab apple among that, like Dalgo crab mm -hmm. apple's a good one. There's several good ones, very disease resistant on Dalgo. And they're good, they put out a lot of blooms, so it helps pollinate things really, really well. And always plant multiples of everything. Even if some are self-fertile and some are not, just plant lots of them. Don't buy just like one tree of one type. Always buy like three, four, five. If one dies, um, no big deal, but, you know, buy multiples. And, you know, and then there's my my next tier list of apples would be like Liberty. I like Gold Rush, even though it's got one susceptibility. And I think Gold Rush susceptibility is... um. I think it's cedar rust, but you can you can spray for cedar rust. My, micro microbutanol, microbutanol. Yeah, so you can. Nobody needs to remember that one. Um, but you can take care of cedar rust. So that's why I like Gold Rush. So Gold Rush, Enterprise, Empire. Those two E's are both good ones. Liberty, uh, Pink Ladies, another one, and that's got a disease susceptibility too. Um, and maybe I'm getting maybe that's the one with the cedar rust resistance. Usually I know this off the top of my head, but I can't remember right now. But those would be my top ones. I only recognize about like, five of those species you mentioned, so that's a yeah. lot of new info. Yeah. Here, here's <laughs> the messed up part, is I could give you a list of 150 that I have on my farm. <laughs> overkill, overkill, but I'm just a nut. I just, I just wanted to experiment with a lot of different types, and I just I love that stuff. But what I'm telling everybody else to do don't do that. <laughs> You're doing the due diligence do for that. us. So you can tell us what the, the, the most important ones are the high, you know, the most successful ones. Yeah. Are. So let's just bottom line it with two, just go two. Arkansas black for apple kefir for pear, make it simple. Mm -hmm. And, and my last thing, my last quick thing is pay attention to your rootstock. Do not buy these from Menards because you're getting trees for the backyard. Do not buy these from your local store because they're meant to be little trees. And what is a dwarf tree? It is a, it's a tree that has a very weak root system that's meant to be short-lived and produce a very weak, small tree. It's actually a weak rootstock. We want strong rootstock. So in my opinion, and I'll get some pushback on this, but my opinion is I would rather have a standard size apple tree on standard rootstock. And you can graft Arkansas black onto standard size rootstock. And then the two extras, if somebody's like, hey, I want to reference this, it reference exactly the rootstock he just said. Um, it's on Iowa till it's in our apple and pear tree section. But the two rootstocks, if you're not going to go standard for deer, would be EMLA111, EMLA111, or Bud118. It's like, what the heck is he talking about? Don't worry about it, but just pick those two. Don't buy the little rootstock from Menards or from wherever. Don't do that because it'll be a little baby tree. <laughs> Uh, and it won't survive on, on farm farms, usually. Uh, so get the right rootstock. Standard is the best. And then those other two I mentioned would be secondary. Okay, got it. Okay, so we're in year two. Is there anything else <laughs> year two after that? <laughs> a little bit, isn't it? There's a lot. It's uh, There's layers to everything. Um. All right, so you got that, you got that area that is kind of idle or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I would, uh, if you, if you like native grasses, you could mess around a little bit with native grasses, not a priority, not a priority. Uh, your timber is just going to have so much more impact than native grasses. And, you know, we talked about this lightly the last time I remember this. So good quality timber is going to hold more deer and have vastly more benefits than anything you're going to do for native grasses. Hey man, I have half timber and half switchgrass. So they're equal. They're not equal. Well-managed timber is going to beat switchgrass every time. Every time, well, this buck likes bedding in the switchgrass. Yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't have value because it does. And I have a lot of switchgrass on my farm. I have a lot of diverse native grass plantings. I have forward plantings. I have all sorts of stuff like that. But for deer, no, timber, timber wins over native grasses every time. So somebody's like, hey, man, I got this thicket area on my farm. It's growing these shrubs and little trees. It's kind of like this very, very young growth timber. I was going to chop this all down and plant switchgrass in there. Don't do that. Maybe a strip of switchgrass for like thermal, thermal reasons. Mm -hmm. That's great. Or, hey, I'm going to add some cedars around there. And if you want to go through the extra work and add like uh, spruce or something like that, you could do that. But you, you got to have thermal cover. Thermal is huge on any farm. So we are addressing thermal cover. And we, we pretty much address the thermal cover with this timber stand improvement. And then pass the timber stand improvement with down trees and just more thick vegetation on the ground and stuff like that. That's that's helping thermal cover immensely. And you have to have it. Then the, the other two things we can do for thermal cover are plant things like cedars or switchgrass. Stuff like that will help with thermal cover. So I would want to do it for those reasons. I do not want to do switchgrass for like, it's going to be just as good as timber. It's not. It will hold bucks though. Mm -hmm. Switchgrass is great. It has a place. Uh, but don't go... So here's what I'm fundamentally saying. If you have new growth timber coming up, I would rather have that and then just put a buffer of switchgrass right around there somewhere, a strip of it, than to like, hey, I'm going to chop it all down so I can add switchgrass. And I've seen dudes bulldoze timber to put in switchgrass. I'm like, no, don't do that. Don't, don't that's do a that. sin. That's a sin in your book. Yeah, in the world you, of yeah you don't do that. <laughs> Go improve your timber. Yeah. Go improve your timber. And I mean... I'm doing a project right now where I've got a huge area that I look back on the aerial photography. They quit farming this area in 1998 and you go, hey, it's open. Now it's 20 foot tall cedars and they're all eight to 16 inches in diameter. And they're all growing together because there's millions of them, millions. Well, now I'm thinning them out because the deer can't get through there. There's nothing that can grow. There's not a deer track in there. There's not a deer track in it because they can't get through it. So I'm going through there right now and thinning them. And sure, sure enough, in 1998, it was farmed. And then I was going there through there. I did one day with a shear, with a grapple and a shear. And I cut them and I counted the rings. I'm like, sure enough, it's, it's spot on. These wow. are whatever, 24 or five-year-old trees, whatever it was. Some I think some of them were like 22, like, hey, it took a couple of years for them to get going. But they had the rings that lined up perfectly with the with the imagery. Um, and that's how fast it can take over is my point. I mean, you can go from bare ground, bare ground to birds flying over there, dropping seeds of whatever type, cedar or, or, you know, bush honeysuckle or some kind of invasive, and they can take over an area very quickly. And it, you know, I say, Hey, it's 20 some years later that I'm finally getting to this where it's choked out. It's been like this for a while. Like I should have got to this earlier. I was just 
I'm overloaded. I just, you know, I got a project list like this. I got to kind of just work my way up. Mm-hmm. Well, this year I'm like, yeah, I'm getting to it. I mean, it's a massive amount of work, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome now, now that you're like, Hey, no deer use this area because the cedars are so, so thick. There's no vegetation. There's nothing else coming out. Now there is 20, 30 feet between cedar trees. They're still there. There now there's thermal cover and I want the cedars there. I love cedars. I love them. Every farm should have cedars in my opinion, just not cedars. Like it's like anything moderation, manage it, manage it. And state level people, governmental people, they hate cedars. Hate them. Just manage them, right? Mm -hmm. Just take care of them. They're native. They have their place. And they have immense wildlife benefit. Immense. Just don't let them get out of hand like (laughs) on my farm. Got it. Okay. All right. And so, I mean, as you're building it up, you mentioned how first year is great, second year is better, third year is better, and then it starts to kind of hit the ceiling. Um. Are there any other projects along the way other than optimizing the farm and learning it throughout that process that we haven't covered that is on your your typical punch list? Trying to think of the best way to go down the rabbit hole because, yeah, my list is (laughs) crazy extensive, but I want to make this practical, too. So um, a guy and that's that's who we're talking to. Where do I start? And listen, when I say that. 95% of the farms I go on, there's nothing that's been done. This is where we should be starting. Where do you start? What are the fundamental few projects you should start with? Yeah. So timber, diversity of food, you know, all the timber, the benefits of timber stand improvement, which I'll just reiterate it one more time, like a broken record. You're killing like eight birds with one stone. And I probably could come up with 10. You're increasing your mass production. You're increasing your browse. You're, comp- you're increasing the amount of bedding areas, which is going to hold vastly more bucks, vastly more bucks because there's all these new desirable bedding areas. Um, you're going to increase the value of your, your top end trees. You're going to help with regeneration of, of the forest. You're, you can change the composition because a lot of these forests have been degraded, degraded for decades where they top end them. And all the junk takes over and we're going to transition that back into high quality forests, which is a long-term process. So it's a long list, but just understand timber stand improvement is killing many, many birds with one stone. It's just the fundamental best thing you can do for, for your farm, period, mm-hmm. period. Uh, food, hunt it smart, pressure it right, you know, and then fill in gaps like, hey, man. I have road frontage and there's dudes shooting deer on my farm out of their truck window. We got to address that. Fill in all the holes. You'll figure out what the holes are. You'll know. Mm-hmm. Okay. You got a hole there. We got 50 million solutions to fix that. You got plot screen. Like, you know, uh, we got miscanthus. We got cedars and hybrid willows where we can stagger them. Um, you know, we can put that into CRP. I had a, I had a crop field that was, right close to the road and every vehicle would just go by at about 10 miles an hour right before dark every night 90 percent of those people just wanted to look at deer 10 percent of them um, might have been up to no good well i screened that whole thing off and then i turned that field into tall native grasses you can't get a bullet in there now mm-hmm. so just plug the plug the um plug the holes on whatever whatever comes next. And that could be a million different things, but you'll figure that out. So let's just leave it at that. You guys will figure that out. Yeah. Or, yeah. or go on Iowa White to and ask a question. 
There you go. There you go. Hey, I have this specific problem. This guy named Jake keeps sneaking onto my farm. I can't get him to leave. What do I do? I'll be, I know Jake. You want me to take care of him? <laughs> we talked about you going missing. I guess I know when I'll go missing. <laughs> there you guys have it. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Be sure to use the upgrade code, trade in a camera, check out Acres. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. It helps us reach more people. In other words, help more people achieve their land goals. That is it. Have an excellent week. See you guys.